Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. If you have your copies of God's Word, please turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. This is what the Lord says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Thus says the reading of God's holy word. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be here tonight to worship you, to sing your praises, and to hear you speak to us through your word. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do just that. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word that Christ may be exalted. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we celebrate Christmas this year, it's important for us to remember what exactly it is we're celebrating in the first place. My wife and I like to take our son Noah on long strolls through our neighborhood. It's almost become part of our everyday routine. And as we've walked through our neighborhood this Christmas season, I've noticed a lot of signs that say, Jesus is a reason for the season. And I have nothing against any of you who may have that sign. That sign is fine. And uh, while it may be cute, it's actually not that helpful, though, because it doesn't help us understand or appreciate why Jesus is the reason for the season. It doesn't explain why he is worth celebrating. But our passage tonight does just that. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, is about a promise that the Lord is making to his people. And that promise is that one day... God will give his people a righteous king who will rule over them. Now, in order for us to appreciate the significance of this promise and the implications that it has for us, we first need to understand something about the kingly office in the Bible. According to the late R.C. Sproul, the king of Israel was not an autonomous individual, which meant that he did not possess absolute authority in and of himself. But rather, the king of Israel was someone who received his office and his power from God for the specific purpose of upholding and executing God's justice. The king, therefore, was a mediator, 
A mediator in the sense that he too was under the law of God, yet nevertheless it was his duty to establish and maintain that law amongst the people. Now to be a mediator is to be an intervening agent on behalf of two parties in order to help them reconcile their differences. For the nation of Israel, the king functioned as a mediator between God and his people. Israel had three different kinds of mediators, prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets spoke to the people on God's behalf. Priests made sacrificial offerings to atone for sin on behalf of the people. And the kings established and maintained God's law amongst the people. In other words, the king functioned as a shepherd who was to lead the people of Israel in paths of righteousness. He was supposed to help them live obedient lives unto the Lord their God. The only problem with this is that Israel's kings, of course, were sinners just like all the other people. Just like you and me. So in order to become, in order to overcome this deficiency, it was imperative for the kings to follow the instructions laid out for them by Moses in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20. There it says that each king was supposed to write for himself a copy of God's law, which he then was supposed to read all the days of his life, so that he might learn to fear the Lord and obey his commandments. And if the king was successful in doing this, it would mean that the people of Israel would have a long and prosperous life in the kingdom that God had established for them. Unfortunately, even Israel's best kings failed miserably to fear the Lord and obey his commandments. Just take King David, for example. The Bible refers to him as a man after God's own heart. And yet we read about him committing the most heinous sins. As a result, the people of Israel also were guilty of breaking God's commandments. And they failed to live righteously because they did not have a shepherd to guide them. And this trend continued all the way up until the time of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied in the days when Zedekiah was king over Judah. In 2 Chronicles 36, we are told that King Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Instead, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And in that same passage, we're told that all the officers of the priests and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations. And together, they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. 
As a consequence for Israel's sin, the Lord raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to come and destroy the land of Judah. In Jeremiah 21, verse 7, the Lord pronounces judgment on Judah through Jeremiah, saying, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in the city who survived the pestilence, the sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And here we see just how severe the consequences for our sin really are. Because, the kindness and mercy, because of the kindness and mercies of God in the past, the people of Judah presumed that they could continue to live in sin however they want. As a result, they suffered in unimaginable ways until they were almost completely destroyed. Indeed, these chapters in Jeremiah describe some of the darkest days in the nation of Judah's history. And the severity of the punishment that they suffered should tell us something about just how heinous our sins are in the sight of our holy God. And yet, what's astonishing is that we see in our passage that God still, after all of the people's sins, after the king's failures to live righteously, God still does not abandon his people. He does not leave them to be utterly wiped out by their enemies. Yes, he may discipline them for a time, but he never completely forsakes them. Which is why in our passage he promises to one day, one day give them a king who will not only save them from their enemies, but who will deal with the problem of sin once and for all. Now the first thing we should notice about this king that is described for us is in verse 5. There we are told that the Lord will raise up this king which means that this king will come from none other than God himself. He will be a gift from God to the people of Judah. And what this tells us about people is that we are incapable of raising up our own savior. The people of Judah were incapable of producing their own faithful king. If they wanted a king who was going to be faithful, who was going to fear the Lord and obey his commandments, this king would have to come from God himself. We should also notice why it is that God will raise up this king for Judah. Why is it that God would save his people when they constantly rebel against him and his law? Well, the answer is not because they deserve it. God does not make this most wonderful of promises because they have merited it in any way. No, in verse 5, God tells us that he will raise up this king for David's sake. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, we read about God making another promise, this time to King David. And there, God promises David that he will raise up for him 
a lone descendant who will establish his kingdom forever so that it will never be destroyed. And this king, unlike all the others, will fear the Lord and obey his commandments. And the result of his obedience will be a flourishing and everlasting kingdom for God's chosen people. And this is exactly what God is promising yet again to Judah in our passage. In other words, he is assuring them that he hasn't forgotten his original promise to his servant David, and that he will be sure to keep it. No matter what the circumstances look like, no matter how bleak things get, the Lord assures his people that he will keep his promise. And this tells us something very important about the character of God. It tells us that God is always faithful. Always faithful, even when we are unfaithful to him. God's love and devotion to us is not contingent on how well we respond to him. God is faithful and true because that is who God is. It is his own character. God's character is one of faithfulness and truth. And therefore, he keeps his word. Let us also notice that this king is referred to as a branch. The word branch in Hebrew refers to a sprout or an offshoot. The prophet Isaiah uses this same name, the same word branch, to describe the same promised king. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, God declares, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, who will bear fruit. Now Jesse was the name of David's father. And what the Lord is saying through Isaiah is that there is going to be a time when he cuts down David's family tree. But then he assures us that from this stump will grow an offshoot that will, that will bear fruits of righteousness for the people of God. And that is essentially what is happening here in Jeremiah. David's family descendants were utterly corrupted by sin, and they were leading the people in paths of unrighteousness and wickedness. So God in his providence is cutting down or pruning back, if you will, David's family tree by raising up foreign nations to destroy Judah. But then from this destruction, God promises there will come new life and a new offshoot from David's family line who, unlike all the other kings that came before him, will be righteous. And here we learn one other important fact about this king. That although he will come from God, he will nevertheless be a man and a, de and a descendant of David. And this righteous branch will reign as king, we are told. In other words, he will not be like Zedekiah. Zedekiah was placed on the throne as Nebuchadnezzar's puppet, only to be dethroned for being disloyal. 
But that's not what this king will be. He will be no puppet. Nor will he be like the kings of this world who themselves are governed by their own greed, corruption, and self-deception. No, this promised king will be righteous, which means that he will not be governed or controlled by any outward or inward force. But rather, he will subject all things to himself and place them under his authority. He will truly reign as king. And not only will he govern, but he will deal wisely with the people that he governs, meaning that he will rightly discern between truth and falsehood, between good and evil, something that is so desperately needed in our own time. This king will do. As a result, he can be counted on to always take the best course of action for his people and to govern in their best interest. This promised king, we are told, will also execute justice and righteousness in the land. To execute justice means that he will uphold God's law by rightly punishing the wrongdoer and rewarding those who do good. In other words, he will exercise discipline amongst God's people in order to lead them in paths of righteousness. That's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd exercises discipline while upholding God's law. To be righteous means to be morally upright. It means to be innocent or guiltless with no reason to be ashamed. And that is the result of what happens when God's moral law is upheld and when his justice is executed. So not only will this king himself be righteous, but by his reign he will make his people righteous as well. Hence, his name. His name will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Now so far, this name reveals the most important detail about this king. The word Lord in the Bible is often used to refer to a ruler or a king, somebody in a position of power. But when we see this word spelled in all capitals like it is in our passage, we know that it is referring not to just any king or ruler, but that it is referring to Yahweh, to God Almighty, the one true king and Lord of the universe. So we see this king will be raised up by God. This king will be a man from David's own family line. And this king will actually be none other than God himself. It is God who will one day come and reign as king amongst his people. It is God who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the outcome of Yahweh's reign will be nothing short of everlasting safety and security for the people of God. Safety from enemies without and security from sin within. To provide safety from without, God will have to once and for all defeat his enemies and ours. 
And in order to provide security from within, God will have to uphold his law and destroy the power of sin over his people. And that is exactly what's being promised here at the coming of this divine king. This divine king has the power to destroy all strongholds. This divine king has the power to destroy all powers and princes of darkness. And this divine king will establish perfect peace and harmony amongst his people and for his people. Now for the people of Judah who originally heard this promise, this king was still yet to come. And this promise was yet to be fulfilled at some distant point in the future. It was something for them to look forward to, to hope in. But for us, for people living in the 21st century, this promise has been fulfilled. The King has come. The King has come in the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, his birth is meant to be something that we look back to and celebrate. Because this King Jesus has done what no other king or ruler could. He has dealt with the problem of our sin. And he has restored his people to an everlasting righteousness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about him in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. But how? How is this possible? Well, it's only possible because of who Jesus is. He's no ordinary man. He's fully man, and yet he is fully God. He's the son of David and the son of God. He is the promised righteous king who deals with wisdom, who upholds the law and executes justice and righteousness. As a result, he is the perfect mediator in whom sinners are now once and for all reconciled to a holy and almighty God. And by his blood we are made clean. We are made righteous so that we too may inherit his everlasting kingdom. And not only inherit it, but reign alongside him in triumphant glory. And insofar as we are united to this king by faith, we will no longer be tormented by the things of this world. We will no longer be tormented by the sin that clings so close. No longer will we have to suffer under the weight of our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual turmoil. 
And no longer will we be subject to the spiritual forces of darkness or even to death itself. But in Christ's kingdom, we will know an everlasting safety and security all the days of our eternal lives. This, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why Christ is worthy of all our love, admiration, and praise. And while many people at this time of year like to take his name upon their lips and sing of his birth, very few people will actually submit to him as their Lord and King. Because to submit means to surrender. To surrender your entire life completely to him. Christ himself tells us that no one can serve two masters. Which means that if we want to be found in Christ so that we can inherit all that is his, we must value and cherish him above all else which means forsaking all of our other masters, whether that be the love of money, power, notoriety, fame, popularity, lust. Forsake them all for the sake of gaining Christ and his kingdom. In closing, the question for each of us tonight as we anticipate the celebration of Christ's birth is this. How will we, we respond to this King's coming? Will we honor him this Christmas with our mouths only? Or will we honor him as the King that he truly is by surrendering our hearts and indeed our entire lives to him? Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your people. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is faithful to keep your word. And we thank you that your word has been fulfilled in the birth, life, death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, surrendering every idol and every inch of sin that we still cling to over to him. Lord, help us to give our entire selves to you, that we may be found united in Christ by faith so that we would be washed clean and made righteous so that we might inherit his eternal kingdom and reign with you forever and ever. We ask these things for his name, in his name's sake and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.